Genre. Previously on Legacy Door. Today I shall introduce you to some people, and tomorrow, if you are free, I will look at your work. Make any contacts? Some might pan out, and I guess you already know Dudek. He seemed pretty taken with you. It happens. Dan wasn't sure where the jolly exchange of good news had ended, but since it was over anyway, he continued to push. If you like, you could spread the happy news around. Listen, Brenda's problem wasn't that you didn't make enough money. It was how not making money made you act. It made you mean. Habitually mean. And making up for that? Not so easy. Thinking. About what? About the risk you're taking. Again. There's some kind of danger focused on me, and we've seen I'm not in control of myself. I told her the outlines of the Strauss case, even as I could feel my automatic sensor walling off the really confidential details. Wow. She said, as I relayed just a bit of my conversation with Jonathan Strauss. That sounds really tricky. Aren't you afraid you'll end up in a situation where anything you do could get you disbarred? Legacy Door, Episode 2.5, Surprise. Tuesday, October 10th, 2017. Justin Brandt, 7.13 a.m. I came into the office early. I'd much rather have been at the gym, which I'd been skipping too much lately, but I needed to brush up my notes for my latest client conference with Strauss. Joe Marquez had filed some preliminary motions that felt to me like probes, testing our reactions. She must have been catching on that prosecuting Strauss would be no ordinary job. Speaking of the extraordinary... My delicate chain of legal thought was disrupted by the ring of my desk phone. My firm does nearly everything textually, except client contact, and no one called in directly. I cursed the inconvenience of synchronous communication and picked up the receiver. Yeah? Justin, said Louise, my supervising partner. Hi, Louise. I know the Strauss case has you especially busy, but there's a gentleman in the outer office who would like you specifically to be his lawyer. He will accept no substitute. I blinked a few times. I'd waited my whole career to hear those words, and now that I was busy to the breaking point, don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. That is unexpected, was the best I could manage. To put it mildly, not that we don't all love you, Justin, but it seems your name has traveled further than we realized. Since things are so quiet this morning, I can put you in conference three, so you don't have to tidy up your office. Will you come out to say hi, or should I send him back with Ted? And that was that. No question of saying no or making a second attempt to fob him onto someone else, just, are you coming out front or meeting him in the back? And there was a correct answer to that. I'm on my way out. Thank you, Justin. His name is Duncan Armory. I grabbed two tablets, electronic and paper. I'd used whichever one seemed to suit the client. Then my jacket, which I put on with a little tablet shuffling as I walked. I passed some colleagues, but there was a distinct lack of finger-gunning. Too early in the day. Speaking of my co-workers, when I opened the door to the outer office, the first thing I saw was Ted, the assistant currently tending the reception desk, giving me a sour face. We lawyers were supposed to let them know if we were expecting outsiders, especially clients, to come to the office before eight. I covertly showed him my empty hands. Can't give advance notice of the unexpected. 
Ted nodded his understanding and handed me a manila folder containing a filled-out intake form. I glanced at it, then turned to see a very smooth customer rise from one of our classy waiting room chairs. When Louise had called him a gentleman, I hadn't thought much of it. That was Louise. But this guy looked... elevated. He was about 40, wearing a bespoke suit, shoes to match, and perhaps the most carefully tended conservative beard I'd ever seen. His tie pin appeared to have an actual ruby in it, and his valise was made from crocodile skin. A lot of rich people don't show it when they're working. The habits that make the money leave little room for frivolous display while making it. So if that pattern held, and I'm still researching it, this guy either hadn't made his own money, for instance had inherited it, or the display itself was a tool of his trade, which could make him anything from an artistic producer, to a gigolo, to a con artist, to a gangster. That list was meant to be in declining order of probability, but something in my gut inclined me toward the last category. Hello, I said, extending my hand. I'm Justin Brandt. Duncan Armory, he responded, giving my hand a measured shake. Thank you for meeting with me. His voice was low, smooth, and of indeterminate accent. I looked forward to imitating it to Jaina, but had a feeling I'd look over my shoulder as I did so. Follow me, if you would, I said, trying to sound hardworking and chipper. They've got a room ready for us to meet in. Excellent. I took him back through our nicer hallway. The door to number three was open, the light on, and ice water ready. I'll say this for my firm. We do sweat the small stuff when it counts. I slid out a rolling chair, not the head chair, the one next to it. Can I have someone get you coffee, tea, anything? I normally offer to get them myself, but I had a feeling this guy would value me more as someone who ordered things to be done than as someone who did things. No, thank you, he said. Not at this time. So, jury's still out on that, but he did look mildly pleased at the offer. I closed the door and settled into the seat opposite his. The head chair is reserved in case I bring someone more senior into the conference. I turned on the electronic tablet. I figured this guy might take analog options for himself, but would appreciate maximum efficiency in his lawyer. So, I began, what can I do for you? I would normally have said we, but here, again, I was trying to guess his preference. There is a great deal that you could do for me and my business associates, I think. From everything I have seen, you are a very capable attorney, and my duties include choosing legal counsel for a real estate investment firm, with assets in excess of a half billion dollars. I kept my gaze steady, but my brain started calculating on its own. Being on the call sheet for a company like that could mean a lot of steady, fairly easy work, plus the occasional more interesting job, and could mean rubbing shoulders with a lot of useful people. But it could also mean nothing at all, so I warned my brain not to count unhatched chickens. He let his words hang in the air as he reached into his valise and pulled out an incongruously bright green spiral notebook with a ballpoint pen lodged in the spine, like I used to do in sixth grade. He put the notebook on the table, pulled a sheet of paper out of the valise, put it on top of the notebook, and pushed them in front of me. But, as you'll see, my immediate business is more personal. The paper was a short letter on Jonathan Strauss's personal letterhead authorizing the reader to discuss all matters whatsoever with his business advisor, Duncan Armory. 
It was dated from Friday, the day Strauss had been arrested. My eyes went wide. Not only was the letter unexpected, this smooth criminal had gotten me in here on something close to false pretenses and had dangled a carrot in front of me without asking for anything. Something was up. Just to be clear, I said carefully, if you're not a lawyer yourself, anything I discuss with you could potentially breach my attorney-client privilege with Mr. Strauss. Of course it would. I have no intention of asking you anything about Jonathan's case. I am here for a personal matter involving him and potential business matters involving you. Just the previous day, I had inwardly accused Vanessa Dorn of being the devil. But this guy was a much better fit for the part. Was being surrounded with tempters like this a sign that I'd finally made it? Is this why the top people got so weird? All right, I said, showing both curiosity and a little impatience. Please pull out the other letter. I looked down at the notebook and saw that there was indeed a second piece of paper sticking out slightly on the right side. I pulled it out as instructed. It was another signed letter on Strauss's letterhead, this one dated from Saturday, the day we'd first met, a day he had spent entirely in custody. It was addressed to me specifically, and set out in so many words, that my representation of Strauss had caused me undue hardship, that he both recognized and regretted this, and invited me to use the letter, publicly or privately, for whatever purpose best suited me, including to help determine or collect my fee. The wording exactly matched the clause in my representation agreement offering a six-figure bonus if undue hardship arose, a clause that would normally be almost unenforceable. This letter could transform that bonus from a mirage into a certainty. Now, we do not consider the undue hardship mentioned in the letter to have actually arisen yet. So I may need to ask you to give the letter back to me at the conclusion of this meeting. However... If you'll agree to do a personal favor for Jonathan, then he would consider it only right that you have the letter, as you will have earned the attendant reward. What favor? I asked immediately. My vision had narrowed. I was no longer trying to make a good impression. I was entirely focused on the benefits and dangers of this transaction. Armory smiled again, then said simply, The next time you have a private conference with Jonathan, give him the notebook. Exactly as you see it now. That's it? That is it. And for that, you would have our gratitude, your hardship bonus, and, if and only if you liked, a stream of further business in the future. Which, if you preferred, could be of a more conventional sort than this task. I didn't want to ask my next question, but I had to. I'm just not the kind of person who can look the other way. I have to know what I'm allowing to happen. What's in the notebook? Armory frowned, a little disappointed. When you give Jonathan the notebook, he will withdraw the pen and give the rest back to you. Do you need to know more? I nodded. He looked regretful. <sighs> the pen contains a substance that Jonathan would like access to. Armory stopped right there. He hadn't said that the substance was something illegal, or even something Strauss wasn't allowed to have in jail, or which I wasn't allowed to bring him. 
Obviously, there were over a hundred thousand clues that one of these was the case, or none of these theatrics would be necessary. But if I stopped asking questions right there, I could just barely say with a straight face that I didn't know I was breaking the law. If I was going to say no, or yes, now was an excellent time to do so. But neither word was coming. Again, curiosity was getting the better of me. It would be stupid to trample all over the line of protection Armory had just drawn, but I wouldn't go into this blind. Maybe I could skirt the line and learn just a bit more. Hypothetically, I said, what kind of substance might Mr. Strauss want to have? Mr. Strauss is a great believer in alternative medicine. This includes a belief in some treatments that are not recognized by the government. So he had given me a plausible theory as to what I'd be carrying. Something malum prohibum, non-malum in se. Bad because there's a rule against it, not bad in itself. But since I didn't directly ask him, he hadn't directly answered. Time for another tack. Okay, not hypothetically, but in reality. Does Mr. Strauss know the exact nature of the substance in the pen? I gave my best hard look, hoping it would help discourage and detect lies. When you deliver it to him, he will. If I deliver it to him. Armory shrugged. Neither of us said anything for a moment. My mind went into overdrive. New subjects arose. How had this guy known I was at work this early? What would it mean to say no to someone like him? What would it mean to say yes? What would it mean to be the keeper of his secrets, however tangential they were from whatever his core business was? I'll need to think about it, I said, almost without realizing it. Of course, he replied, rising from the chair, smoothly but without hesitation. Then he put out a hand. But I'll need those letters back. I offered him the whole stack, but he took only the two letters on top, leaving me with the notebook. What about this? I asked. The notebook is yours, and the letters can be couriered back to you within minutes. Here's my information. He put a purple business card on top of the notebook I was still proffering. Duncan Armory, consultant. Email, phone, even fax, but no address, either physical or web. Thank you, I said. No, thank you for this consultation. I know your time is valuable. Can you direct me to the exit? I led him back to reception, and we had another measured handshake in the outer office. I held the door open, and he was gone. When I got back to my desk, I had a text message from Louise, asking simply, A new client? I replied, Unclear. Vanessa Dorn, 7.49 a.m. Vanessa woke to a slight chill and a sound like rustling paper. Eyes still closed, she stretched towards Dan's side of the bed, found only an empty spot with the covers pulled back, and made a small sigh of disappointment. <laughs> she smiled in amusement at herself. She hadn't spent a full night with anyone in some time, but a bed companion was an easy thing to miss once you got a taste of it. She opened her eyes and saw Dan, fully dressed, putting down the wastebasket near the front door. Then he opened the door, and pale light flooded in, making her squint and turning him into a silhouette. Hey, she said, both as a greeting and an objection. Hush. Go back to sleep. I'll be right back. Then he went outside and closed the door.
She sighed again and rolled over, bunching the covers around herself and pulling her legs into fetal position. This was delicious for a few moments. Then she felt cramped, so she stretched out, arching her body and taking up as much of the bed as possible while spreading out the covers on top of her. This also felt great, except that her bladder started to make itself felt. Ah well, she decided. If Dan could get up and out this early, she could at least see to basic bodily functions. She pulled off the covers, shivered, walked to her suitcase, pulled out a robe, donned it, and entered the bathroom. As she used the toilet, she stared at the clean but chipped tile floor, wondering what Dan was up to. A planned errand? Coffee or breakfast for them both? Something work, friend, or family-related that had come up while she slept? She put her hopes on breakfast. She'd completely forgotten to eat dinner amid yesterday's excitement. She finished, flushed, stood up, looked at herself in the mirror again, and saw that her jaw now had a full-blown bruise. She speculated that giving Dan some grief on the subject could be fun and cathartic for them both, as long as she somehow made it clear that he shouldn't feel bad, which would be a tricky balancing act. She shook her head and yawned as she walked back into the main room, resolving to make one more attempt to sleep. Approaching the bed, she saw that the message pad on the bedside table had writing on it. She nodded, the existence of a note made perfect sense, and also justified his lack of explanation when exiting. She wiped her eyes and took a look. The writing was in block capitals. Big mistake. Leaving. Goodbye. Her jaw dropped. Her fingers tingled. Needing some employment, they tied her robe closed. She blinked back tears. Her nose sniffled, and then her ears got hot. She bombarded herself with accusatory questions. How could she have been so stupid? How could she have been so right about him for so many years and then let this happen? Let him walk out on her, on their plans, on Abby and Harrison, and lie to her as he did it. The thought of things proceeding this way with her in here crying and him out there laughing was intolerable. How could she have put her secrets, her future, and her body in the hands of that stupid, cowardly, shiftless motherfucker? Unbidden, she heard her inner Dan correct her. Cousin fucker. That's what he would say. He was always ruining the moment. She went down to the floor, sitting cross-legged where the bed met the wall, the rough carpet chafing her thighs. And she thought, how can I pretend to know what Dan would say? I didn't know him at all. But she did know him, that was the thing. Even the evidence of her eyes couldn't convince her otherwise. If two people had ever shared anything, they had shared something the previous day and learned a lot about each other in a short space of time. She ran the morning through her mind. Even if Dan had woken up scared, even if he was walking out, he wouldn't do it like this. His note might have been whiny or self-serving, but it wouldn't be terse. His spoken words and his stride wouldn't have been so assured. What if, some part of her asked, someone threatened him, told him to leave her or else they would come for her? Perhaps he was surrendering himself to them right now in some ill-conceived attempt to save her, and they'd forbidden him from telling her about it, had told him exactly what to write and how to write it, if all of that had happened, would the world make more sense? A little, she admitted. He was the right kind of stupid to go along with that. But was he the right kind of smart to pull it off? 
to tell her to hush and close the door like it was nothing? She shook her head. It, it didn't fit. Maybe he liked her. Maybe he hated her. Maybe he loved her. She didn't know. Likely he didn't either. They'd gotten friendly, and he'd gotten over his old fear of her enough to perform repeatedly and well, given the right encouragement. But he wasn't nearly comfortable and confident enough around her to pull off some secret mission without her suspecting something, even if, no, especially if it was on her behalf. He would have been out of there as fast as possible. No dawdling around looking at wastebaskets. When she woke up, he would have cut and run, with at most a mumble and a backward wave. She closed her teary eyes. What had he been looking for, anyway? The rustling sound she'd woken to came back to her. Obviously, it had been him sifting through the wastebasket. But as she replayed the sound in her mind, she realized it had been coming from the wrong direction. Opening her eyes, she saw that there was a second wastebasket, which she hadn't even noticed before, underneath the bar of coat hangers she wasn't using. That was the direction the noise had come from. So he hadn't just searched that one wastebasket, he'd searched them both. Without conscious thought, she rose from the ground, stood by the hangers and surveyed the room from that vantage point. What was there to look for? His phone? His keys? Hers? She walked quickly to where her purse sat on the floor. It was all still there. Wallet, Android phone, iPad, keys, motel key. Then she scanned around more slowly. The bedside table was empty. His stuff was gone. Except... There was a glint between the base of the table and the bed. She stepped closer. No way, she thought. No freaking way. His rental car keys were on the floor. She picked them up and kept them in her hand while she shook off her robe and quickly donned a skirt and t-shirt from her suitcase. She kept hold of the keys as she did this, afraid they would vanish if she let them go. Then she put on her shoes, grabbed her purse, and warily opened the door. She half expected to get jumped, but there was no one out there. She couldn't see Dan's parking spot from the doorway, so she walked to the railing, letting the door swing shut and lock behind her. There it was, the silver Ford that Dan had rented. And no Dan in sight. She held out the rental key fob, hit the unlock button. The lights flashed. She hit lock, they flashed again. She took the motel key out of her purse let herself back into the room and closed the door behind her. Her mind was processing several things at once. She pulled open the curtain and looked out. The car was as invisible from there as it had been from the doorway. There was something significant about this, she felt, but she couldn't see how it fit. She looked in the wastebaskets. Nothing but dried tissues, visible remnants of their collisions. Did he want a sample of his own DNA, she asked herself? Apparently not, since he left them. She shook her head again, still sifting for answers. So what had he been doing? Looking for the rental key? He might have overlooked it, then panicked and ran when she awoke. She could picture her Dan doing that, but what about the different Dan? The Dan she'd seen that morning for just a few moments. It seemed like he could have easily snowed her for a minute and searched more, or even recruited her to help. She'd been so blurry, she was sure she would have bought whatever he was selling, and he could have hidden his little love note until it was time to leave. So, she asked herself, why hadn't he looked harder for the key ring? The only answer seemed to be because he'd forgotten it existed. 
That wasn't entirely unbelievable from Dan, but then he should have remembered it as soon as he was outside and wanted to leave, especially if he wasn't planning to come back. Was he planning to come back, she asked herself. Was the note a terrible joke? No, she developed a sense for when some event tied into her family's strange legacy, and this unquestionably did. She just didn't know how. Her brain was spinning in circles. She decided the best way to quiet it was to get out of the motel room, take some positive steps, and that way she might not jump at every sound, fearing or hoping it would be him. Given that step one would be to shower, she hoped there wouldn't be many such sounds in the next few minutes. Joyce Vera, 8.27 a.m. Joyce, like Vanessa, was in a bathroom, but in a very different attitude. She was slumped on the tile in an earth-toned maxi skirt and a purple long-sleeve tee. Her face pressed against the side of the toilet bowl for support and for its reassuring chilliness. Joyce, like Vanessa, was rethinking some decisions of the past 24 hours, and further like her, was trying to move from self-recrimination into planning for the future. She'd spent the early evening getting some pieces critiqued by Dudek, and then the night trading drinks with him and his cronies at his loft. That was where she'd gone wrong, she knew, but she resisted blaming herself. The men hadn't looked like much. They were so short and so weathered and so old. But Dulce Jesus, Jesucuchani, sweet Jesus, could they drink. She should have known better, she knew. Babunya would have been disappointed. Joyce, like Vanessa, assumed that a noise she heard was Dan returning. The front door opened and closed. And then she heard the closet door open. Makes sense, she thought. That's where his shit is. She heard something plastic settle on the floor, and then the rustling of fabric. He might be breaking out his bedding, or perhaps he was preparing to do laundry. She pondered whether to get off the floor and interact with him. A little circulation sounded healthy, as did talking to someone. She pondered how long she'd been regretfully sitting there. Two hours? Three? If nothing else, she knew she could use some fluids. She got on her feet. She saw mouthwash by the sink and vaguely remembered gargling it hours earlier. She thanked the almost unreachable earlier self who had done that. Then she smoothed out her skirt, pushed some stray hairs back, and walked out. In the entryway, she saw Dan, dressed in slacks and short-sleeved button-down, putting all his clothes, clean and dirty, into a plastic storage tub. He looked at her and gave a tight smile. Laundry? Moving out. I think it's time. She couldn't argue with that but there was a crispness to how he talked that she wouldn't have expected. But then, given the tense way they'd left things, he might be keeping buttoned up around her. This made her want to hug him, but she'd long ago programmed herself to second-guess affectionate displays when she was under the influence. So she just gave him a smile. He looked back at the closet and said, Have you seen my laptop around? She noticed one of his paper notebooks was in the plastic tub. She shook her head and said, Nope. I don't think it's around here. She walked past him to vaguely look around the small living room. Don't worry about it. A sharpness in his tone made her turn to look at him. He smiled more toothily and added, I probably just left it at work. How is work? Secret. Sorry. That fit, she thought, nodding. But even his apologies sounded different. At that moment, one of Brenda's songs started playing from Dan's pocket. He took out his phone, showing none of the panic he'd displayed last time this had happened in front of Joyce. He showed her the screen, which said, Mom, and asked, I don't suppose you could take this and say I'm in the bathroom? She shrugged, nodded, and took it out of his hand. Hi, Mrs. Lutcher. 
Hello, is that Joyce? Yes, it is, she answered, getting off her unsteady feet and sitting in the easy chair, loving the feeling of the afghan against her back. Well, then you know it's Gina. Yeah. Dan can't come to the phone right now. Ah, but he's over there at Jerry's? Uh Uh-huh, answered Joyce. Her mouth felt dry. She decided to drink some water, or better yet, juice, as soon as the call was over. Well, tell him to call his mother when he gets the chance. I'll do that. How are you doing, dear? Are you making a go of it? I'm trying. But schmoozing can be hard work. Well, don't let the bastards get you down. I always knew you were one of the strong ones. Thanks, said Joyce, feeling teary now. God, she thought, I need to get a hold of myself. You're the sweetest. Why, thank you, dear. Take care. I'll do that. Goodbye. Goodbye. Joyce sat in a glow of well-wishing, until Dan's hand intruded into her field of vision. She put the phone into it. Call your mother, she said with attitude, then turned to see him put the cover on the tub and open the front door. I'll do that. And I left the keys on the table there. Please thank Jerry for me for letting me stay here. No problem. She thought about asking where he was moving to, but decided that if he wanted her to know, he would have mentioned it. So she silently watched him heft the tub and begin to exit. Can you close the door after me? Yeah, sure, she said, standing up on unwilling legs. He went out to the hallway, and on impulse, she said something she'd previously kept to herself. You know, you should change that ringtone sometime. It's creepy. He gave her a blank look, then said, Thanks. And headed down the stairs. She fulfilled her promise and closed the door, the memory of his final face bothering her. She might have expected any number of reactions to her remonstrance. Petulance, guilt, humor, annoyance with himself or her, or an attempt to suppress any or all of these. But he looked as if he simply did not know what she was talking about, why the ringtone would mean anything at all to her. Strange. She shrugged, then made her way to the refrigerator. Fluids, she resolved then bed. You have been listening to Legacy Door, episode 2.5, Surprise. John Dre was Justin Brandt. Jamie Wren was Duncan Armory and Dan Lutcher. Stacy Tappan was Vanessa Dorn and Louise. Jamie Gosling was the primary narrator. Michelle Lamone was Joyce Vera. Song Marshall was Gina Lutcher. The opening music was Ethereal Thoughts by Victor Wayne. The closing music is Deep Ocean Meditation by Melancholic Bird. You can hear more of their music on Toontank. The Legacy Door cover photograph is by Roxana and Nash. This episode's cover image is With Style by J.C. Bailey. You can find more of his images on Unsplash. So, as we approach the middle point of this entire series... Something is definitely going on with Justin's client, Jonathan Strauss, and with our own Dan Litcher. And the remaining characters will start facing up to this in next week's episode, Challenge. And if you're finding it a challenge to wait for your next bit of Legacy Door each week, you can jump ahead by buying the original novel on Amazon or the audiobook at fine booksellers, including Audible. You can also support us by reviewing Legacy Door in Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice, or tagging Legacy Door Novel on Twitter, Blue Sky, Mastodon, or Facebook. This is one of the fine podcasts presented by Dueling Genre Productions. Legacy Door is copyright 2021 by Bob J. Kester, 
All rights reserved. This is Bob J. Kester. Thanks for listening.